It's the 17th of December, 2017, and this is episode 350 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey, everyone. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Hey, guys. Happy holidays. Thanks for taking the time this season. Happy holidays to all our listeners. It really feels like Christmas this year <laughs> with what's going on in Bitcoin. Well, it's better than two years ago, so I uh, can't complain too much. <laughs> yeah, for sure. A lot of people are hearing about Bitcoin for the first time. We're seeing a lot of new listeners. So I just want to say to anyone who's joining us for the first time, welcome and thanks for tuning into our show. It's pretty obvious that Bitcoin is experiencing a large boost in popularity and being talked about recently. And a lot of people are wondering what it's all about, but they're also wondering, well, like, what's going on? Is it a bubble? Is this real? Is it here to stay? Are we in the 1995 of the internet stage right now? Or is this like tulip mania? So what do you guys think? 1995 or 1999, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like to start with tulips. This is the most cliche of bubble talk. And when people bring up tulips, I don't know. I just instantly lose any respect I have for that person in terms of their economic analysis for two reasons. Well, the first one is that the entire Tulip Mania episode was actually recorded 60 years after the fact in a couple of documents. And most of them refer to a single transaction that happens in the last couple of days of the Tulip Mania. And in fact, most scholars believe that transaction actually never cleared. And it was a transaction for a single tulip that was two orders of magnitude higher than any of the other prices. And of course, you know, the average of Bill Gates and everyone in the diner is a billionaire, right? <laughs> and so um, that's basically, it inflates the whole thing and makes it look like much bigger than it actually was, and uh, misunderstand some of the root causes. Most of the analysis of that is really more suitable to a fairy tale or a parable of morality than a serious economic analysis of a serious bubble. It's probably the least studied bubble, which yet is mentioned the most often. Well, I've heard that too, Andreas. And I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but just to play devil's advocate real quick, like, can you blame people for being skeptical? Because there are a lot of things that get touted as, oh, this is the greatest thing you have to buy in. Well, it's still early and blah, blah, blah. And I've made these great gains. And people hear that enough times and they're like, yeah, right. I got to protect myself. What makes Bitcoin any different? Nothing. It's in a bubble. But that doesn't change the fact that if you use the word tulip, I've lost all respect because you don't understand when or the actual economic circumstances of the tulip mania. That's basically a throwaway comment that makes people look like they have an opinion that they have considered when in fact all it demonstrates to anyone who has actually studied those events is that they haven't got a considered opinion. They're just repeating something they heard. Yeah, I mean, when you hear that from established economists, it's like, dude, that's just lazy, right? It's just lazy. And of course, you know, there's there's all the other arguments as to how easily you can make a comparison. There are much better comparisons to the Bitcoin bubble that come from specific technological bubbles. The internet bubble of 2000, 
uh, 99-2000, for example, is a much more apt comparison because they both serve the role of their disruptive technologies, the form as a platform, the value in the platform is greater than the individual companies, the early ideas don't wash out. You know, all of those things are very apt comparisons. Um, perishable flowers in the mid-16th century in Holland that offer no uh, actual use case other than aesthetic is is actually a lazy comparison. So I think it's more interesting to look at some serious comparisons, some serious bubbles, and and look at the facts. On the last episode, we talked about CryptoKitties. And it strikes me that many of the characteristics that don't fit well with Bitcoin, describing that as a bubble, actually do fit pretty well with the CryptoKitties, right? Especially compared to the Beanie Babies phenomenon or the Tamagotchi or... Right. I mean, like Beanie Babies can't reproduce, but CryptoKitties can. (laughs) Yeah, basically, for anybody who's just tuning in and didn't hear our show last week or doesn't know what a CryptoKitty is, they're essentially kind of similar to Beanie Babies. They're, They're cats, virtual cats that live on the Ethereum blockchain. And the only difference between them and Beanie Babies, as Adam pointed out, is that the CryptoKitties can breed. And having the ability to breed quickly is like a desirable characteristic. And so there's a market for them. And they become so popular that they kind of clogged up the Ethereum network last week and it was making the rounds in the news. So we talked about that. Okay, I have to say, as a cat person who actually had cats most of his life, the ability to breed efficiently is not a bonus. I can guarantee <laughs> you. When you wake up in the morning and your cat has had six more in the closet, that is not a good scenario. Well, but see, this is the efficiency of cats on the blockchain. Is that it's so much easier to to remarket them using smart contracts. It's actually one of the better uses in terms of you know being actually pretty clever for smart contracts that I think we've seen to this point. It's not that tulips were not useful at the time. Actually, there weren't many types of flowers around, so they were actually something that was a little disruptive and new. It's just that they didn't have the same type of characteristics as a deflationary cryptocurrency. Well, deflationary over time. It seems like that's the thing. It's not necessarily that they weren't both bubbles is what you're saying. It's just that they have fundamentally different characteristics. So the comparison, I think, should do two things. It should offer insight and a good comparison should also be somewhat predictive. And this does neither. I also think that looking at Bitcoin as a specific object is missing the whole point in that it is a fractional representation of utilization of the network. And it's the network that has value, and the the token is actually the scarce uh, representation of access to that network. So unlike a tulip, where you would just own the tulip, you didn't have access to a network or some sort of platform. So with Bitcoin, you can say, well, what is the value of this token? The value of the token is is nothing, but for the fact that it is a scarce amount of a resource that gives you the monopolistic access to the thing that has massive value, which is this, you know, the most decentralized global immutable state of a database like database. And, uh, and that's the thing that has value. So whereas with tulips, it was the flower with Bitcoin. It's not if you think Bitcoin's about the token, you're missing the network. And that's that's the thing that has all the value. So then we can look at this from an experiential perspective as well, which is whether you think the underlying value of this asset commodity or whatever you want to consider Bitcoin 
is matched to its current valuation, there are other signs you can look at. And the classic one is what they call the shoeshine test, right? Which is the story told of when a very well-known financier on Wall Street, on the way up to his office, heard a shoeshine kid offer stock tip advice. And at that point decided, okay, now we're truly in a bubble I better get out. Now, this story, which is somewhat apocryphal Wall Street story to, to describe bubbles, is coming true in my life all the time. I'm meeting all kinds of people who have absolutely no understanding of what this is, no appreciation for why it works, how it works, why it's different, and do not even care, saying things like, oh, it's probably a bubble, but I think we can still write it, so I put in 50 bucks. And so did my uncle, my nephew, my grandmother. Um, and it's happening to me on a daily basis. And I'm hearing snatched conversations in trains and buses and cars of people going, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, in the background. And that, to me, speaks volumes, right? That says bubble more than anything else. Okay, so we think then that this is a bubble, but... You know, you were saying that there are kind of uh, useful ways to describe things in comparison. So, Andreas, you were saying that like the tech bubble is, uh, or at least the tech market, you know, in the 1990s up through 2000 is an apt comparison. Are there other apt comparisons or is it really kind of just dialed in on this technological side? Well, I take a step back first and say, what use is it to say this is a bubble? I think that's not a very useful statement. Because the really interesting information that's relevant to making decisions is not encompassed in the statement, this is a bubble. Um, sure, lots of things are bubbles, in fact, right now. So is it a bigger bubble than the S&P 500? Is it a bigger bubble than the bond market? Both by percentage and in absolute value, is it a bigger bubble than gold? That's one much more interesting question. And of course, the more important question is, and then what? Because bubbles in themselves can be great investment vehicles until they pop. And before they pop, sometimes you might find that this kind of exuberance and overvaluation lasts a lot longer than your tolerance in holding a short position. I get a number of people, like family, and, and you know, I hear stories of people's grandmothers asking them how they can get involved or how they can put money into it. And I, I keep telling people, you know, if you look at 2000, when that bubble popped, it was the investors that got washed out. But if you became a developer, if you said, well, I think this internet thing is going to be something, and you started developing skill sets that that new economy would need, I mean, those people didn't get entirely washed out. They actually did quite all right. They're still in the industry, and they did fine. So when I see someone walk up to me and they say, you know, should I take the $4,000 that are all the money I have and, and buy a fraction of a single Bitcoin, I say, why don't you spend that money to learn and get educated, take Andreas's uh, GitHub repo <laughs> on mastering Bitcoin and start reading it and become the equivalent of a blockchain developer because I don't know what the price is or isn't going to do, but I know we're going to live in a world where those people are going to make a good living. Yeah, I really like that answer, Jonathan. I mean, I, I feel kind of the same way. Like, I don't even really feel annoyed with all the <laughs> sort of newbies and the newbie attitudes about Bitcoin. To me, it's just a sign that even if this is a bubble, it's here to stay. This is real. This is really catching on. It really is like the internet to me anyway. 
Well, there's a short term and a long term, though, because so the question that was relevant, which is like, I'm thinking about the long term here. Well, I I understand you're thinking about the long term. And I think we're all thinking about the long term. But the problem with saying to people, well, you know, in the long term, this is going up, is that most people don't have that long of a time frame. And most people are looking at this market and thinking, what's the best timing for me to actually buy? So in the short term, it actually is a little bit relevant if we're in a bubble or not, because the last time that we were in a kind of a comparable situation, we had two years of very, very down prices where if you had bought in at $1,300, $1,200, then you were at a net loss for having participated from a you know monetary standpoint for a good year and a half, two years. I mean, even even the Ethereum project lost about eight to nine million dollars because they held everything in Bitcoin after they did their token sale. Right. It seems like on the one hand, this is either a short-term parabolic bubble and Bitcoin isn't going to change the world on the one hand, or on the other hand, it's the, an S-curve of adoption. And really, we're just using this kind of parabolic lift to get, to get up there. But chances are still pretty good, at least in my kind of skeptical head, that this isn't going to be a straight line up and that there will be, you know, potentially year long pullbacks in this. And maybe that pullback is, you know, from $30,000 and we only pull back to $10,000. But even now, as used to, you know, the price at $17,000 ish, we are at this point after just a couple of weeks, you know, like it could go down very, very substantially. And someone buying in at these prices then has quite a negative opinion about it and most likely will sell. We saw a lot of people who did not really believe in the vision, but were just kind of looking to profit from the trend, um, not be able to hold for that long. So I think, so for me, that's where the question of is it a bubble is relevant is because it, it's, it, it's a question of is the best move to participate now or is the best move to dollar cost average when you're trying to acquire stuff or is there time to do what Jonathan is saying? And to, you know, to really kind of invest yourself at a much deeper level and work into it, because those are all kind of different things that are really affected by whether or not this is a short term bubble or whether this is, you know, a long term bubble. Well, I think it's all of the above, Adam. Like, yes, maybe it is a bubble right now. It probably is, but it's also going to change the world. And so put yourself in a position where you perhaps can afford to take a longer position in it and be in it for the long haul, right? I mean, I guess I feel bad for a newbie who invests in Bitcoin now and then there's a huge pullback and they get really bitter and they they sell and then they hate Bitcoin forever. And that is going to happen. But also at the same time, there's going to be a lot of people who you won't feel so bad for, you know, that the same thing will happen to. Well, I'm worried it's that is going to happen. Not only is it going to happen, it's going to happen to 75% of the people who came in in the last year. It's going to hurt them really bad and it's going to take us down quite significantly because of the panic and then we're going to get stuck sideways. I anticipate that's the most likely scenario right now. I'm going to be a Debbie Downer, even though I'm usually an optimist. And if you have a long-term vision for Bitcoin, I read this all the time on Reddit and I know it's such a trite meme, the hodl, 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 but that's not smart investing. Quite honestly, as an investor... At this point, if I'm feeling that everybody around me is getting this completely irrational exuberance without understanding any of the fundamentals, and it's mostly flowing into weak hands of investors who are, can see nothing but upside, that's a time for me to take profits, maybe sell 10% of my holdings, and say, okay, great. If, if it goes up, it's, it's not a big deal that I, I didn't huddle that last 10%, but if it goes down, I have an opportunity to go back in. It doesn't sting as much and i can still take a long-term perspective but you know this is gonna get ugly i think it's gonna get very ugly and all of the people who 
had a short memory, forgot what you told them in 2013, and are now clamoring, knocking down your door, going, tell me more about Bitcoin, now I want to buy. You know, five months from now, if it's 90% down, will hate you as much as they love you right at the moment. I'm seeing a lot of the same language as the last times this has happened in Bitcoin, because this isn't the first time this has happened. Yes, the first time it's happened to this magnitude where the price has reached all-time highs multiple times a day, every day for the last couple of weeks. But before, when we saw these vast price increases, people were saying stuff like, oh my God, I missed the boat. I heard about Bitcoin in 2011. I didn't buy and it's 2013 right now. And they're saying that, or, you know, in, when it went up in 2014 around the Mt. Gox crash, we're saying the same thing. And I see that same language right now. Everybody's saying, oh, I missed the boat. Like, what are some other crypto coins I can invest in? And so that to me feels bubblish because it's been kind of a hallmark of that's associated with other bubbles before. Totally agree. And, you know, I think the same people who are making those kinds of comments are really not going to be focused on the long-term potential of a decentralized platform for peer-to-peer uncensorable and neutral payments. They have no idea what that sentence means, why it matters, or any of the philosophy around it. And so that's the worst kind of investor to come in and come in at a time when, quite honestly, because of the fee structure and Lightning Network not yet being deployed, there's also all kinds of usability problems. So a lot of these people are going in, they've never actually made a Bitcoin transaction. They've signed up to a custodial exchange. They've made some MySQL transactions, (laughs) lots of MySQL transactions. I never actually made a Bitcoin transaction. In fact, if they actually try to do a Bitcoin transaction, it will probably end in tears and complaints on Reddit as to how they paid a $25 fee. And then they couldn't even recover their Bitcoin when they tried later. Right. One of the biggest fears in this space from an entrepreneur when you decide to make something a blockchain-based protocol is just how fair weather the friends are when you surround yourself in the blockchain-based ecosystem. Because unlike accredited investors and unlike angel investors, their time horizon windows is a day, is three minutes, is what have you done for me in the past hour? And one of the, I I think like someone should write a case study on this is, is what happened to MasterCoin. MasterCoin was probably one of, if not the first project that did this whole token sale notion. They were based on top of Bitcoin and almost immediately experienced a 100x increase in its price. And what happened was adoption was increasing exponentially as the price was increasing to the point where the average cost basis of almost everyone in the community was somewhere on that curve of 100x. And as they kept growing the community, people started profit-taking, the price went down, and then people said, wow, MasterCoin's dying. What's happening to MasterCoin? Why is it dying? Because people conflate the health with immediately what the price is doing right now. And it got to the point where if you look to year to date, MasterCoin did an 8x but it just so happened that in between that 8x, it did 100x and corrected down to just an 8x. But that was enough to kill its own community and its own growth cycle to the point where it couldn't it couldn't get past that. It couldn't keep that community and that interest and that, that sort of vibrance around it because so much of the people who consider themselves MasterCoin people only experience this massive downslide. And that's sort of the fear you have when you decide to make something a blockchain project rather than a real company. Hmm. That's an interesting cautionary tale, Jonathan. I was just about to make an argument that was kind of counter to what you're saying, that 
I think that a case could be made that there is a silver lining in this. Like, we, obviously, we can't control or we can't choose how user growth occurs in Bitcoin, right? But a lot of people who have been interested in the vision and the ideology of Bitcoin for a long time really want like mass scale adoption. They want it to grow and to proliferate and, and spread throughout the world and gain users. And we can't choose how that happens. Right now, it's happening at a very accelerated pace. And yeah, it's possible that a lot of new users may have a negative experience because what happens when the pullback comes? But I was going to say that I, I still think you could say that still good to have growth, right? We're experiencing a lot of growth and, you know, hopefully we'll have more growth in the future. And even if they have a negative experience, maybe in the short term, in the long term, you know, they'll know about Bitcoin forever and it'll be here to stay. But th there does come a time where rapid growth can just be described as cancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Adam and Andreas, like, what do you think? Do you want Bitcoin to gain users and to spread? Are you is that one of the things that excites you about Bitcoin? Quantity versus quality is the key issue for me, which is at the moment, if we onboard a whole bunch of people whose only intention is to get rich quick and fear of missing out, then all of the problems and scaling issues get magnified. There's zero willingness to tolerate any of that while they're the growing pains and, and have a long-term vision and the pullback will be vicious. So no, I mean, I honestly, this, this, it doesn't scare me, but it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I, I don't think it's good for the long-term plans. It tends to dump too much money in the hands of weak startups, more money on the table to get stolen from exchanges and hacked, more scammers get attracted, more pyramid schemes every single day are being attracted in the outskirts of the ecosystem. And a lot of people are going to get hurt and burnt. And that's only going to generate, you know, the biggest commodity that we're going to have come out of this is articles in the obituary format for Bitcoin. We're going to have a lot of those. We already have a lot of those, though, and it's well, still we're here. Have more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I realize that. But don't you think that, okay, yes, I know that there's lots of people who are driven by FOMO and by, um, you know, get rich quick ideas. However, don't you think there are also a lot of people sort of sitting quietly on the sidelines and watching this play out without investing or without investing very much? And they're going to know about Bitcoin. I mean, maybe they've been sitting there for years and just watching it. The brand impact, I think, at the moment is probably great because we're getting nonstop coverage and it's not about drug dealers. It's about average people investing. It's about opportunity and all of that. So that's not bad. And I think in the long run, we are going to keep some of the new users and hopefully it's going to attract more developers are going to be interested in investing in skills instead of investing in Bitcoin directly, or who will balance the investment in skills with their investment in Bitcoin, and actually one of those will hold over the long term. But yeah, I mean, Bitcoin isn't going anywhere. Even if it crashes 90% and people write a thousand new obituaries, the platform still works. It worked at $3, it works at $17,000. And the people who matter, who are doing productive work, the creative People in this space were never motivated by money that much anyway, and will continue to keep doing the work they're doing. And some of them have a bit more financial freedom now. That's all good. We're not going away. 
Uh, it's just a, a whole bunch of people may go away and get a sour taste in their mouth. And we'll spend two years going sideways until people hear about Bitcoin and then they'll go, oh, is that thing still alive? So for people who are interested in actually acquiring Bitcoin right now, they're looking at these prices and they're saying to themselves, all right, so you just told me that it could go down a lot. So we're not giving advice, but the advice that I tend to give to people who ask me, which, you know, not a financial advisor or anything like that, is just dollar cost average seems to be like the safest way. Pick an amount that you can afford to have a two or three year long time frame on in case there is a big pullback. I know people who are putting in like $50 every two weeks or like $25 a week. And it's like it's not very much money to most people, but it is kind of a safe way to do it because you're not buying very much at any one time. And over the course of a year or two years or however long you want to, you can accumulate something where you know that you're not going to be on average paying higher than the cost uh, or missing out on too many opportunities. Another thing you can do is work for Bitcoin. If you don't want to actually spend money on it, you can exchange it for your labor that's another strategy that some people are more comfortable with. Yeah, working for Bitcoin is great if you can find people who will pay you with Bitcoin and you can, you know, make sure that you're getting paid in amounts that make sense. Yeah, and that kind of goes along with what Jonathan said as well. Like you may need to develop some specialized skills, but I mean, actually, you don't necessarily need to. I'm a voice actor and I've have some clients who pay me for voiceovers in Bitcoin. And that's something that I've been doing for a while. So I'm a fan of the whole work for Bitcoin thing. There's a there's a man that made quite a lot of money just selling uh, baklava for a single Bitcoin each and has never sold them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. He's been on the show. Yeah, Mandrick, that's a pretty good deal if you can get it. Those early days opportunities, though, you know, it certainly is a lot harder to sell a single piece of baklava for a Bitcoin these days. <laughs> Better be some damn good baklava. Sorry, I would add another piece of advice here, which is that I'm not a financial advisor again, but my gut feel tells me, yes, at this point in time, we're more likely to see an 80 correction down than we are to see another 100% up. And people need to go into this knowing that. And if that scares you, this is not the investment for you. I think that that's well said. We play the game sometimes trying to predict the price. And uh, one of my friends predicted $15,000 by you know Christmas uh, in uh, summer. And I was like, that's completely wrong. <laughs> that will never, never happen by Christmas. And so it's just, it's really hard to predict what this stuff is going to do. But it seems like certainly the reversion to mean We've just spent so much more time at below $1,000 than we had above $1,000 that the idea that we're going to stay at $17,000 and never go back down to 1000 seems optimistic. <laughs> so I don't know. We're all trying to hedge our bets at this point, but it's a very hard game to play, whether you're new to it or whether you're old to it. The opportunity cost, like some people who I know who have just absolutely made more money off of this than anything you could possibly imagine doing in the real world. You know, it's like they still feel bad because they miss out on small opportunities because like they sold some finally. Right. So it's it's crazy. Like it's weird. Like th this phenomenon is both making people very financially secure, but it's also actually increasing anxiety, I think, because now there's more of something to lose for a lot of people. Ah, uh, now we're getting into my favorite subject, which is the Bitcoin therapist stuff. Um, <laughs> I just want to point out, Adam, like what you said about all the regret that people feel and all the uh, feelings of missed opportunities. Those are normal feelings, right? Because, you know, we kind of evolved these mechanisms of defense to when we miss out on something that could have been a great opportunity, we remember that much more than the right 
decisions that we made. And our brain, we kind of beat ourselves up over it in hopes of not making that mistake again in the future. And maybe that served us well at some point in evolution, maybe not. But all that stress is is stress that people put on themselves, and it's completely optional. You don't have to feel that way. You can congratulate yourself on the good moves that you've made and congratulate yourself for being here. If you're in Bitcoin or even if you've just heard about it, keep it in perspective. You're actually ahead of 95, 99% of people in the world. So I think people can feel good about that instead of feeling like stress because they missed an opportunity and they don't have the 100% optimal vision of what if that they're thinking. Well, I think that's really the important part there is that like, I don't necessarily agree that it's a choice problem, right? Of course, it's a choice. <laughs> it's It's pretty disempowering to not think of it as a choice, right? I know it feels like it can feel like sometimes when you feel a certain way, when you feel anxious or stressed or what or sad or whatever, or angry, it feels like you those feelings just happen with without a choice. But there are thoughts underneath those feelings. And if you can kind of question those thoughts, then you maybe you don't have to feel that same way. At this point, some mainstream economist or financial advisor is perhaps listening to this podcast and going, ha, I knew it. Bitcoin is in a bubble. It's going to crash 90%. I knew it wasn't going to last. And it's just, it's probably just a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid. I'm finally vindicated. And at the same time, we're hearing all of these news articles. People have actually started saying, what if Bitcoin is a systemic risk to the broader economy? What if Bitcoin and its bubble bursting is the catalyst for the upcoming economic crisis? Like, yeah, start writing the narrative now. Here's the thing. Before you feel gloated and fully uh, full of glee over this, just remember, Bitcoin is obviously risky. And there's a difference between investments that are obviously risky and investments that are just as risky, but in a very non-obvious way. There is a lot of discussion all over the news right now, especially the financial news, as to how Bitcoin is a bubble. No one is talking about sovereign debt. No one is talking about the S&P 500 being a bubble, the student loan market being a bubble, the automobile loan being a bubble, the London real estate market being a bubble, and not just London, a dozen others, the debt of sovereign nations and central banks being a bubble, the stimulus system. We are living in bubbles, and arguably Bitcoin is the smallest and the least consequential and the most obvious. So spare me all the schadenfreude. This is much bigger than Bitcoin. And the real impact and the real damage doesn't come from the Bitcoin bubble bursting. At least the people who went into this probably could see how risky it was and only put their disposable income into this. Don't have their pensions invested in it, but they do on the S&P 500 and bonds and real estate markets. They don't have their entire family wealth invested in it, but they do on their mortgage. And so I would be much more concerned about the real and enormous bubbles that are completely outside of Bitcoin that no one is talking about. I think, as I've said before, if you look at the financial news and all the talks about the Bitcoin bubble, uh, they doth protest too much, methinks. Well, and the Bitcoin market, it's just so small. So even if there was, even if assuming for a second that the bubble bursts, there's a major, you know, depression in Bitcoin as a result of that, nobody in Bitcoin is systemically important. 
So if there was an issue that occurred that, you know, that sort of echoes systemically, that's a further indictment of the banks and the, and the rest of the legacy financial system because they either bet too heavily or just, just again, like the only possible way that Bitcoin has systemic implications at this point in its cycle is if the banks are behaving inappropriately with it because they're the systemically important enterprises. Everybody remember this when the exact narrative that Andreas just described comes out after the crash and the entire economic collapse is blamed on bitcoin yes <laughs> you can know that that's uh, bs this is a narrative that i started talking about almost a year ago and it is the narrative that at first they blame you for starting the fire then they simply blame you for pointing towards the exits as if that's what caused the fire in the first place and bitcoin is going to get blamed and we need to remember we didn't start the fire Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by EasyDNS.com. EasyDNS is the only domain provider that takes Bitcoin and Ethereum. Blockchain startups are challenging the status quo. When yours attracts attention, you need to know that your domains will be safe. EasyDNS loves blockchain, and they're a stickler for due process. As a valued client, you are leading a revolution that Easy wants to be a part of. So, when it's time to register or renew your domains, remember... EasyDNS is the official domain provider for letstalkbitcoin.com and a great place to be. Back to the show. On the topic of economic collapses, uh, pointing towards Bitcoin as, a, as an area to be blamed for it, Venezuela just announced that they have Carlos v uh, Vargas, excuse me for my pronunciation, just became appointed the first superintendent of Venezuelan cryptocurrency. So I believe it's Venezuela's CEO of Bitcoin, if I if by fiat, I believe. And they are announcing that all Bitcoin and cryptocurrency miners will have to get regulated, will have to get registered, and that in the near future, we will understand what those registrations mean and what will happen to those miners. But it seems like, as Andreas said, when stuff starts going bad, Bitcoin's a really easy scapegoat and looks like Venezuela is starting to finally take note. Okay, anybody who tells you that all you need to do is register for a license, it's a trap! <laughs> yeah, the only reason they give you a license is so they can take it away or so they can deny you one if they want oh, to. Oh, no, in Venezuela, it's so they can take you away. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> what what actually are they saying here? So they're saying you need to get registered to be a cryptocurrency miner. And people mine in Venezuela because electricity is very inexpensive in many parts. Free. It's free. Electricity is free. So, I mean, that right there sets up a pretty good fundamental system for doing that. Now, electricity is free because it's subsidized, right? What happens is, as in many resource extraction economies like the Middle East petrostates, and Venezuela is, of course, the South American petrostate, what happens is that when the most important component to taxation and government health comes out of the ground by the barrel, voters, the middle class, and things like democracy no longer matter or have any economic importance. So what you do is you bribe them so as not to start a revolution. And that only works for a short period of time. And the way they bribe them is no income tax, subsidized heating oil, subsidized gasoline for the cars, subsidized electricity to the point where it's free for most. And then, of course, someone decides to start a miner and someone notices the 36 kilowatt hours of electricity consumed in a single month in a house that's supposed to have, you know, nothing more than an electric fan. Right. And so this is something where kind of at the beginning of the process, the infrastructure for pulling oil out of the ground was relatively efficient. 
And the price of oil globally was quite high. And then as the kind of infrastructure has degraded, as the government has taken more control of the mechanism of production, and as the price of oil has gone down globally, that's made it so that where maybe this wouldn't have pinched five years ago or 10 years ago, now it actually is something that they, you know, is, is worth blaming, right? It's, it's become enough of a problem, not necessarily through Bitcoin, but just because they aren't generating the same sort of thing, but they have to continue offering at least the same amount of subsidies that they were before. And so that causes all these shortages. And and meanwhile, the currency is collapsing. People are starving. They're literally up against a wall. Their entire life savings, if they had any, has been degraded. And they're looking for something. And so, I mean, if you can get some Bitcoin mining hardware, you take advantage of the free electricity. Hey, why not? But the, the actual quote from Carlos, the superintendent of Venezuelan cryptocurrency, translated into English, I'm assuming, said, we want to know who they are. We want to know where they are, and we want to know what equipment they are using. So by December 22nd, all miners will be required to register. And the thing that I find concerning about that is that Venezuela is the nation that you used to be able to legally own a firearm, and then you just went to their registry and took all the legal firearm owners' guns away. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Venezuela is known for nationalizing private sectors. And, and I don't understand why they need to know what equipment you are using. You would, you would think they'd Unless they're going to do it themselves. Because <laughs> they're going to say, wow, look at all these Bitmain miners. Wow, look at all these, these miners. Let's, let's do, what if we nationalize this? Ah, that would make much more sense. They're, they're making too much profit. Why don't we give them a salary and then we own the miners? It's also an important symbolic countermeasure you've got to understand that in that particularly perverse mixture of nationalism and currency the narrative always becomes about the foreigner just across the border who is using currency to undermine the patriotic fervor of the citizens and to stab them in the back usually with the collaboration of some local traders the fifth column the uh treasonous press and other undesirables. And so in Venezuela, this is, of course, related very much to national competition with Colombia, who are being blamed at the moment for undermining the currency with smuggling, with counterfeit boulevards, and with other, um, you know, shadowy actions, always in collaboration with local traders. So the ability to exit the system of crisis that exists with Bitcoin and save yourself, attaching that symbolically to treason, attaching that and creating a scapegoat attitude and image around those people is very, very useful for the regime because it supports their overall narrative. So first they're going to round them up, then they're going to have them sign confessions as to how they did this under the instruction of, let's say, for example, Colombian intelligence agencies or drug cartel operatives from across the border. And they did it because they got so greedy that they forgot about their patriotic duty and also screwed over their family and their church, uh, if possible, at the same time. It's going to be a very comprehensive confession. And then they're going to parade that all across the newspapers to strengthen the narrative. This is textbook. And it gets a little scarier. On December 9th, so just last week, they raided and arrested a 31-year-old who had 20 mining rigs set up. And he's currently being charged with money laundering, illicit enrichment, computer crimes, financial terrorism, exchange fraud, and damage to the national electric system. So, And, and that is because he was mining Bitcoin in Venezuela. 
before it even became illegal to do without a license? <laughs> so in, in America, there's this notion of something's not illegal until it's explicitly said to be illegal. In other countries, it's inverted. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Well, they also do ex post facto laws um, in many countries where it applies to things that happened before, which is, of course, a mockery of the, of the very term law. But I think that the illegal enrichment is particularly precious. Illicit enrichment. Illicit enrichment. That could be anything. So Venezuela is not even that creative in discovering the fact that money makes for a much better criminal prosecution than the actual crime committed. The United States pioneered that particular mechanism. Venezuela has been doing this hyperinflation thing recently. <laughs> in Zimbabwe, we saw kind of the fallout from this repeated uh, hyperinflation cycle and the inability to manage the money of the country result in the leader actually being removed in something that looked a lot like a coup. You mean they didn't learn their lesson the first time? Well, it was interesting, actually, because the thing that really seemed to catalyze it in Zimbabwe wasn't the hyperinflation. It was the kicking out of the vice president who had been, I believe, I get a little uh, iffy here because I'm getting, you know, news just from the Internet. You know, my understanding is had been interested in doing something different than the monetary policy that they had at that point. Well, actually, I think that the real story here was that everybody assumed that the vice president, uh, nicknamed, I believe, the crocodile, was going to be somewhat more of a reformer. And of course, as with many tin pot dictators, Robert Mugabe had amassed an enormous personal fortune uh, through corruption and graft. And instead, he started grooming his wife to succeed him and replace the vice president and then fired him. So this has a lot to do with a kind of Game of Thrones plan of succession that went bad. So it's actually similar to Argentina, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, with Kirchner. Right, yeah, because uh, the, uh, the the wife of the former president essentially uh, came in and, and resumed and was just as bad as, it, as he had been. <laughs> and uh, Stephanie, in the defense of the uh, Zimbabweans, I looked it up, the median age of Zimbabwe is 20. Oh my gosh, wow, really? <laughs> yes. So maybe okay. maybe they weren't taught that from their parents. Well, uh, I, I think one of the interesting things is that always the, after the coup, they present the new leader as an avid reformer whose only interest is in stamping out corruption and reforming the old system, when everybody knows that they are exactly the same and in fact came straight out of the old system. Interestingly enough, we're seeing the exact same thing happening in Saudi Arabia with, I, I think he, he goes by BMS, who is the, the son or nephew of the old king and is being groomed for succession and headed the anti-corruption committee in order to clear out the old guard in something that resembles very much a quiet coup that has a lot of the top officials and money launderers arrested to make make room for a new generation of money launderers and corrupt officials, right? Under, under the flag of reform. Right. Is this a changing of the guards in where the guards change, but the fundamental reality underlying the guards don't change at all? Or is this actually something that looks like reform? And, you know, I think that we should all be skeptical going into it, but it seems like that's something we can only really see for... I mean, it just seems like if you become in the position to take that control, chances are pretty good you're not the person who's actually going to solve the problem, right? I mean, like, I, I have yet to really, I can't really think of any examples of real reform in any governments around the world, you know, where you actually see a fundamental change to corrupt systems. Yeah, that's not a coincidence, because reformers don't last long. <laughs> 
they can't ever get to the point where they can make a difference. So one thing that Venezuela is doing that's different than really anybody else we've seen so far, you know, go down the hyperinflation path and kind of any of these other things is they're apparently going to be launching a cryptocurrency that will be, I believe, the first example of a cryptocurrency fiat currency. Crypto fiat currency? How do we say that? A fiat cryptocurrency? Is that an oxymoron? I mean, it's not It's not really. It's not a fiat currency at all. In fact, it's less fiat than, than Bitcoin. <laughs> fiat currency means issued by decree, usually created by a government. I think that's actually the definition. Yes, and not backed by anything, as in backed only by the promise of the government and not any physical commodity or asset. Well, not redeemable by anything, right? I mean, like that. I thought I thought redemption was a characteristic there. Yes, and what they're doing in in Venezuela, at least in theory, is they're creating a crypto asset to monetize resources in the country, including oil, copper, and other minerals. And so, this is supposed to be backed by oil reserves. This is supposed to be a way to monetize and tokenize the oil reserves and other mineral reserves, natural riches of the country in order to, well, stimulate the economy and create something that can be used for debt servicing and for raising money uh, in other forms. Now, of course, the fundamental problem is how do you verify that the assets that are backing this are actually there and held in reserve? And that is a trusted third-party function. And in this case, the third party is the government of Venezuela, and trusted just went out the window. So I'm not quite sure how you achieve that. Right. Well, but that's the point is that if you want to make it so that you don't have to trust the government of Venezuela beyond a certain point, right? Like to, to the to exclusion of all other things that matter is you make it so that it's actually redeemable. Because if it's redeemable, then there is actually a potential for bad behavior to be caught out simply by them running out of stuff. Whereas if it's just backed, then yeah, you not only have to trust them about, I mean, you, you just, you just have to trust them for everything. And if you want, find yourself kind of on the wrong side of that and they have lied, then you have no recourse because you can't actually exchange it for the underlying value. So that would be the question for me is that if it is just backed but not redeemable, I actually would consider it crypto fiat because like you said, it requires those trusted verification steps and those aren't going to happen here at all. And so from that perspective, it's basically the same thing, except it can get around the blockades that are going to be put against Venezuela or you know that they're facing as a result of their recent default and kind of global financial markets. So I think that from that perspective, like it could have a short term positive impact, even if it's just backed by but not redeemable for. but if they actually did make it redeemable, it would have two effects. One would be that they would have to actually be responsible, and two would be that they wouldn't have to be trusted nearly as much. The other big question then becomes, how the hell do they secure this thing? Because the only way you can secure a blockchain is by making it decentralized. That's the security model. And the way you make it decentralized is by having some kind of competitive activity that is rewarded either with a stake or with a proof of work or some other extrinsic thing. Or they're simply doing proof of authority where a single set of keys signs for everything. And that is fundamentally insecure. I am guessing that there will be a lot of agents of foreign governments laughing at how easy it will be to eventually steal those keys, compromise that infrastructure, uh, brick it if necessary with a nice little firmware uh, worm and uh, take over the petro or trash the petro or issue far more petros than can be backed and crash it that way. The problem is going to be security, and it's the fundamental problem with these central governments, centralized blockchain currencies.
it'll be interesting to see how much it becomes worth because I think that actually has a pretty big impact in terms of how much security is required. What I think we're going to see happen with these crypto fiat projects or projects where a government is issuing and they don't necessarily want to share trust. I think we've talked about this before in the context of China is I think that these chains are going to wind up using a federated model. And the federated model will say, all right, well, we're not going to let anybody mine these chains. We're going to let specific agencies mine these chains. And then essentially you go around and you get all of the different government agencies or all of the different kind of extra state government agencies, what have you. And you use that as your basis for decentralization. And it's not as good as Bitcoin. It's not as good as proof of work. And it's not as good as any of those things. But it is much better than just having a centralized ministry type function. And yeah, they'll probably have, you know, the central, the who, who gets to be a node is controlled by a central ministry type function that could be compromised and stuff like that. But I think that that's kind of the sweet spot for all of this stuff because you get kind of all of these performance advantages since you're not doing competitive mining and competitive mining is what makes the process so expensive, but you still have distribution so that if five different government agencies are all compromised at the same time, that doesn't fundamentally affect your monetary policy. They would have to compromise, you know, like, I don't know, 30 or 40, depending on, you know, in China, it's like you could have a system where each regional government um, is running one of these things and you'd have hundreds of nodes that are all distributed and where they would all need to be compromised, not all of them, but you would need to compromise hundreds of them in order to actually affect the stability of the system. So I'm curious, Andreas, what do you, what do you think about an approach like that? It's not as good as Bitcoin, but is it good enough? Isn't 30 or 40 countries coming together to effectively collude and mislead the economy called the World Trade Organization? I think it's called the IMF, actually. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I mean, like, that's another, like, if you wanted to do a supranational one, one that's bigger than just one country, you could do that. And it has the same basic effect. It's like, it's not as good as proof of work because it's not a competitive money burning process, but it does actually have a lot of advantages versus a centralized system. Well, here's the problem with a federated system as such, which does not include a pure proof of work component that is anonymized. And that is that if you do a federated system with proof of authority, the more participants you add, the harder it is not only to maintain security over those participants, but to actually also maintain consensus of those participants, keeping them all of them online, keeping them all, all of them operating without losing their backups or losing their keys and getting disconnected and having power failures forces you to tip the balance, the M of N, you know, what is the quorum required to reach a decision? If you make the quorum high, you have higher security, but higher failure rates. If you make the quorum low, you have lower security, but lower failure rates. There is no perfect sweet spot there. This becomes a very complex problem to solve. And it also gives the central power of issuance of a currency to this federation, right? So what happens when these local states or agencies have their own political ideas? What happens when they decide to have a coup? And this time they can do their coup on the blockchain of the cryptocurrency of the nation uh, without a single soldier mobilizing from the barracks just by changing 20 of the 30 signatures. And they've essentially hijacked the currency. So uh, there's all kinds of difficulties with that. Because you don't just lose the decentralization, you also lose the neutrality by having named and vetted participants in a proof of authority system. And that's why things like this haven't worked before, because you have agents who have misaligned incentives who are added in a way that's difficult to remove them securely or change them securely, because they have to be vetted once and then you can't easily allow 
random people to join this vetting, which means that the system becomes inflexible and can't respond to a crisis. All kinds of difficulties in security. It's why these types of consensus algorithms were not used in distributed systems before, because they were non-optimal solutions to business design fault tolerance. Proof of work has a lot of features that people don't understand, but which are critical to having some neutrality in the network. So let's see them try. I think it's going to be an interesting experiment. Uh, better their country than mine, uh, or the one I'm in at any point in time, because I think this is a very dangerous experiment. Asset-backed cryptocurrencies, state-sponsored cryptocurrencies, they keep saying very explicitly that this will allow them to weaken the banking and wire transfer-based sanctions that are applied in the United States' unipolar superpower world that is now ending. The fact that they're saying that tells us that a whole new strategic domain has opened up for cryptocurrencies, and that is where countries are strategically inclined to use cryptocurrencies to create a more multipolar world and to undermine U.S. dominance. Now, that bodes very well for Bitcoin in the long term, because while all of these state-sponsored cryptocurrencies have security problems and are not neutral, there is that strategic argument to be made that Bitcoin's already there, it's already neutral, and it can be made even more secure uh, by having the strategic interests of multiple countries tied up in it, because then the the power is even more diffuse. So, you know, that's another long-term perspective that will change this game quite a lot, and I think speaks volumes for the value of neutrality of a uh, uh, global transnational currency. But it also means we're going to get a lot of negative attention and propaganda, especially in the United States. Now this becomes the currency of a rogue state, and it gets tied into geopolitics and nationalism in the U.S. in a way it's never been tied before. Oh, I was thinking that exact same thing with Venezuela. Like, who would who would be one of the parties that would be incentivized to try to crash their petro cryptocurrency? I mean, the first one I thought of was the United States. And then what? Then they try again, only this time they use Bitcoin. Well, and that's kind of another interesting question. Though I've had for a long time, you can do something like the Petro where you entirely are using your own resources, whether they really exist or they don't exist. I've seen people try to do the same thing by saying, all right, well, there's you know, this much ore in the ground, we're going to create a cryptocurrency that represents all of this, you know, uh, future ore, and that'll be the backing for it. I think really, at the end of the day, what we're going to see is, is countries starting to use Bitcoin itself, not as the vehicle for their currency, necessarily, but as the backing for their currency as like the digital equivalent of gold and what people used to do, and perhaps even see a system that emerges where in a situation like, you know, with uh, Cyprus or with Greece, where they just have no real way to get out because there are trust issues if they were to issue their own currency. You can actually assuage a lot of that by saying, all right, well, this is how much Bitcoin we're holding. This is the currency we're printing. This currency is backed by this Bitcoin. And if you want to make your currency deflationary, then you peg it to a specific you know, Bitcoin amount of Bitcoin. And if you want to make it not deflationary, then you say this is this many you know, dollars or pounds or whatever kind of benchmark you want worth of Bitcoin at any given time in a sort of redeemable fashion. 
And you could actually have a really interesting system where governments that have repeated histories of driving their currencies into the ground actually can issue functional currencies, be constrained by that because there's much more transparency than in a gold system and still benefit as a government, as an entity, as a country from the appreciation of Bitcoin over time. Yeah, we've we've just entered a whole new realm for cryptocurrencies, for Bitcoin itself, for the broader space. And the geopolitical stakes are going to keep increasing and the drama is going to keep increasing. But so is the value of decentralization, censorship resistance and neutrality under those pressures. Those things become very, very valuable. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by EZDNS.com. Content for today's show was provided by Stephanie, Andreas, Jonathan, and Adam. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and featured music by Jared Rubens and The New Time. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. Have a good one.